Over the next week or so, residents of various Wisconsin communities will have the chance to cast their votes in various spring elections for primaries, for local things, for judicial offices. If this is something that you follow at all, you've probably seen that there's a bit of a difference between these spring elections than the usual fall ones. Most of the races on the ballot tend to be nonpartisan ones. And so the candidates don't build their campaigns around the platform of one of the major political parties. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we don't need to get into today. But one of the side effects of it is that sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to figure out what a candidate stands for on some issue that you care about a lot, but they haven't really made as part of their primary platform. And so in order to find out which candidate you might like in a race like that, you have to depend on what might be called secondhand information. You probably don't have a chance to talk to the person face to face. And so you have to rely on things that those who supposedly know, write and put online, or things released by various news organizations, or things that you find by looking around and doing some research on the way that person has served in other positions in the past. Secondhand information. And we've all probably seen some of the drawbacks to that as well. As people get drawn into confrontations and arguments about which source of secondhand information is the more reliable one and which one is right and which one is wrong and it kind of just descends from there. And the end result is a lot of arguing and fighting and not really a whole lot of certainty about what's actually true and what actually is not. Now in a world that's a sinful world and is filled with people that do have biases and self-serving agendas and things. It's a natural part of a sinful world. It's probably wise to have some skepticism about things that you hear secondhand. But at the same time, having that as such a prominent feature of life is something that is not without its challenges. It takes a toll on relationships with other people. It takes a toll on all sorts of things in life as you try and figure out the truth. And it can take a toll on your spiritual beliefs too. Because such doubts and skepticisms can come into our lives and beliefs as Christians as well. And let me give you a couple of examples to think about. Maybe doubt and skepticism starts to carry the day for you when you realize that a significant portion of society looks at all kinds of things in a very different way than what you and I would as Bible-believing Christians. And you can have some doubt and wonder, well, how do I know that I have things right? Or maybe doubt and skepticism is something that comes into our lives and comes into our hearts when we or somebody that we care about faces something difficult. And there's a little voice in the back of your mind that says, I thought this wasn't the way the Christian life is supposed to work. What has gone horribly wrong? Or maybe that doubt and skepticism comes into your life when you're brought face to face with some of the consequences of something sinful that you did or somebody that you hurt and you realize that no matter how hard you try, you don't seem to be getting any better at actually living life as a Christian. And so you wonder, well, what is wrong with this? What is not matching up? Skepticism and doubt can start to carry the day. <clears throat> don't think that this particular technique is a new one that the devil invented just for the 21st century Christian church. If we were to take ourselves back 2,000 years to first century Christianity and consider the groups of Christians living in Asia Minor, the ones who would have first read the words of our second scripture reading from Peter's second letter, 
I think we could find a lot of reasons for people back then to be struggling with doubt and skepticism as well. Let me give you a couple of examples. At that time, living in the Roman Empire, the infant Christian church would have found plenty of things where their views of the world did not match up with broader culture and society. And at that time, those differences sometimes burst out into rounds of persecution. And it seems like at the time when this letter was written, some of those things were probably coming to a head. In fact, if you were to read the rest of Second Peter, you'd find a number of references where it seems like Peter knows that his days on earth are numbered and the cause of his death is not natural causes. He has perhaps fallen into the hands of the wicked emperor Nero. Some scholars even so, go so far as to say that perhaps for these Christians in Asia Minor, Second Peter was the last piece of communication they ever received from their beloved apostle. And so this group of Christians is facing the loss of one of their key leaders. Doubt, skepticism, you can imagine that arising. And then you add on to that some of the ideas and questions that were being asked even within the Christian community. There were some at that time who were casting some doubt on the things that Peter and the other apostles said that they had seen Jesus do. Because some of that stuff just sounded so fantastic. There, there's no way that could actually happen. So was it really as true as Peter and others said? And then there was a group that ridiculed that early Christian church because they were waiting for the coming of Jesus and they just kept on waiting for his return and then waiting a little bit longer and it never seemed like it was happening. And then there were still others who said that perhaps when Jesus did return, it wouldn't really make all that much difference anyway. Plenty of reason for doubt and skepticism, perhaps not as different from today as might at first guess. And don't think that Peter himself didn't also know what this particular struggle was like. One can imagine him knowing the days of his life are numbered and evaluating his situation, not just his current state of pending execution at the hands of the Emperor Nero, but also the ways that his life had changed since he had met that interesting rabbi named Jesus. As Peter followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, well, he surely would have been familiar with what it was like to be an outcast from the religious establishment and to be one of the people that, that everyone looked at and kind of wondered what they were all about. Peter would have also been familiar with his own shortcomings and failures. You can remember his moments of weakness in denying Jesus. There's countless examples of him putting his foot in his mouth by speaking without really thinking. Some of them are recorded in scripture. And perhaps many other struggles that only he and those around him know about, not recorded in the Bible. But whatever the case might be, and here's the point for us today, in those times of doubt and skepticism, one of the things that Peter turned his attention back to to find his certainty and confidence was Jesus' transfiguration and the things that he had seen on that mountain. Here's how Peter put it from today's second scripture reading. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. For Peter, the events that happened at Jesus' transfiguration had been what one might call a mountaintop experience in his life, and not just because it literally happened on the top of a mountain. This was a high point for Peter, something that he was able to look back on in the future, something that he marveled at as it took place, and something that he returned to in the future, something that restored some of the confidence that 
would get shaken from time to time from the effects of life in a sinful world. And Peter returned to that memory again and again. And if you put yourself in his shoes at the time of Jesus' transfiguration, you can perhaps understand why this was such a comforting thing for him. Because at this point, Peter had been following Jesus for, for a while, for long enough to see some of the things that Jesus was doing. He had seen some of the amazing miracles, and he had heard also some of the amazing and fantastic sounding claims that Jesus had made. Claims that he would raise himself from the dead. Claims that he was the Son of God. Claims that he was not just a rabbi, not just a prophet, but more than that, he was actually the one that all of the prophets had been pointing to. He was that long-promised Messiah the world had been waiting for. Kind of fantastic claims, but when Peter thought back to what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, he realized that what he had seen was evidence, was eyewitness proof that those claims were true as he saw Jesus put that glory on display. And then he watched Jesus put it aside one more time, go down the mountain, continue walking the path of the Savior until he climbed that other mountain to the cross and finished his work there. And as Peter reflected back on all of this in his times of doubt and uncertainty, he marveled at how things had fallen into place for him as he understood what that glory he saw at the Mount of Transfiguration actually meant. Peter puts it like this in a continuation of today's second reading. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. In other words, this testimony from the prophets, we have that as something completely reliable. It's now been verified because we see the one that it was all pointed to, Jesus. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter had seen Jesus' glory for himself. And he wanted Christians in their times of doubt and skepticism to understand what he had seen and find the same certainty and confidence that, that he found in it. And that's why you and I still, as part of the Christian calendar, celebrate Transfiguration as a festival in the Christian church. Because these events are the certainty, are, are the proof. They are the evidence that Jesus is who he says that he is. They're the, this is a demonstration of his glory that shows why it was so significant as Jesus finished his ministry and died on the cross and all the rest of that. Peter invites us to return to this mountain and to marvel at what he saw there, to make that a part of our lives and find the same confidence that he found, to take those same words and apply them to our own hearts. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter invites you and me to join him in marveling at what happened at that mountain. And the good news is that is something that you and I can do. Even though it happened 2,000 years ago, and even though none of us have personal memories to recall in the way that Peter did. And you might think about the point that Peter makes in the remainder of the section from his letter like this. Sometimes law enforcement and criminal justice people will talk about the chain of custody for a piece of evidence. Meaning the way that that piece of evidence has been handled has gone through the chain of custody. It can get from when it was collected to the trial without someone having tampered with it, without it being altered so that it can be depended upon to be true and accurate as testimony of what happened. In the remaining verses, Peter describes the chain of custody, if you will, 
for the message about who Jesus was. And he talks about how that message came from God and was communicated. It was showed to the apostles and to the prophets and others. And then God used them to write down what they saw for God's people of future generations to benefit from. He puts it like this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, whenever you and I have the chance to read something on the pages of Scripture, we also have the chance to join Peter in returning to that mountain and seeing through his eyes what he saw there and what God led him to write down and preserve for us today. And so in our times of doubt and certainty, Peter encourages Christians to return to the mountain by seeing things through the eyes of those who saw it for themselves and were inspired by God to write it down for us. And so for those Christian, Christians in first century Asia Minor, Peter says, in your times of doubt and concern, return to the mountain. Take those gospel accounts, which some of which have been written by this point, and read through them. Read those events from eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus for themselves. And realize that no matter what the Emperor Nero does to Peter, no matter what kinds of questions other people might be raising about infant Christianity, the things that Jesus accomplished did take place. And the message is not going to die out with Peter or the first century Christians because God has recorded this eyewitness testimony for future generations. You can return to the mountain. And the same thing is true for God's people today. Peter invites us too to return to the mountain and to look at the pages of Scripture and see Jesus' glory is revealed there through the eyewitness testimony of those who saw it for themselves. Return to the mountain in our times of doubt and uncertainty and realize what this display of glory means for us. It means that when Jesus finishes walking that path to the cross and lays down his life, that's not just a person dying, which happens all the time. That's the true Son of God laying down his sinless life for you and for me to pay for our sins. That's the glory that's revealed there. Or when it comes to Jesus rising from the dead, this is not some fanciful dream. This is something that took place. This was the declaration of Jesus' victory, and there's eyewitnesses who wrote about it and recorded it for you and me to read. And that resurrection means that our sins are forgiven, and it's the backbone of God's promise that we will live again with him forever in heaven. And as for that glory that Peter saw on the mountain, well, that's the same glory that Jesus will return in one day to take his people home to be with him, to live in that glory forever in kind of in the way that Peter and James and John wanted to on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter invites God's people to return to the mountain, to open the pages of Scripture and to see the glory of Jesus that is revealed there. And he promises that that is something that will bring certainty and confidence into our lives, even in times of doubt and concern. And so when we face those doubts and concerns and those moments of uncertainty, and inevitably we will because that's a feature of living in a sinful world, let's take Peter's advice and let's return to the mountain, open up the pages of Scripture and be reminded of what this eyewitness testimony tells us about Jesus our Savior and what that means for us. Because you and I know what God promises he will do when we return to the mountain and read his word. He'll send the Holy Spirit to give us the strength that we need to draw us closer to him. He'll send the Holy Spirit to bless us with the kind of confidence that God wants his children to be able to enjoy even in a world that is filled with uncertainty and doubt. When we return to the mountain and open the pages of Scripture, God promises that he will give us exactly the tools that we need 
to handle life in a world that is filled with sinfulness and uncertainty. And when God keeps that promise, as he always does, well then for each one of us, we could say that that will be our mountaintop experience, a chance for us to see God's glory and to see exactly what we need to handle life in a world filled with uncertainty. May God grant such an experience, such a blessing to each one of us, not just today, but every day, as we have the chance to open his word and marvel at the glory contained there. Amen.